Next speaker you heard from and the panel, and you, so you know that he's going to be discussing PrEP. Uh, Dimitri Deskalekis is Assistant Commissioner, Bureau of HIV AIDS Prevention and Control in New York. Dimitri. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chicago. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. I know that it's hard. There were good cookies. There was carbs everywhere. So I'm going to try to keep you awake um, for the next 35 to 40 minutes, um, focusing on a topic that is pretty interesting and exciting, which is really the why PrEP is important, like talking about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, putting it in context, and then really focusing down on what's going on from the perspective of PrEP and STD. So um, just as a little piece of background, um, at the National HIV Prevention Conference, um, the, the Jono asked me to do a debate with uh, my, my equivalent character from Seattle. And my job was to talk about how HIV prevention and STD prevention were actually disaligned. So I didn't believe it for a minute. But it's really interesting to think about what happens when HIV alters the story and changes how we need to approach STD and may challenge us with some new ideas of what our strategies should be to, <clears throat> to both prevent HIV and to better control STD. So this is the framework of this talk. So because I work for government, I regret to say I have no disclosures. Zero, zero. Um, so the learning objectives for today are to, to really think a little bit about the PrEP data. I, I am not going to badger you with every PrEP study. I think you've had that done. Those hands went up in terms of the number of people who prescribe PrEP. I'm going to show a couple of slides that are just representative, but we'll talk a little bit about why it's important to think of who needs PrEP. Then talk a little bit about some of the approaches to PrEP initiation and risk as assessment, and that includes risk assessment for sexually transmitted infection, and then just think about ways and what our strategy should be not necessarily focusing on current guidelines, but potentially where guidelines should go in the future for sexually transmitted infection um, control. So I'm gonna sort of start off by saying that I'm gonna try to convince you that testing for STDs will be a very important piece of actually controlling STDs. Just like um, we, we think that treating HIV prevents HIV, we, I, I actually think that, that we can treat ourselves out of some of the scenarios, and so we'll see what that really means. Um, so before I start um, with the STD portion, I just want to talk about um, PrEP and PEP and other things in one sort of clear way, which is I tend to think about HIV medication as prevention, antiretrovirals prevention, really in two buckets, event-driven pre prevention and risk-guided prevention. So that red triangle, that's a risk event. So that's sex, drugs, or rock and roll. So something happens, somebody can start post-exposure prophylaxis. We know 28 days worth of, of three drugs results in prevention of HIV acquisition. But what we also know is that they, uh, if you look at the studies of uh, post-exposure prophylaxis in sexually active, specifically MSM, that they don't zero-convert at day 28, they zero-convert three to six months out because events continue to happen. And so the idea is that in the intervening period between, um, that's fine, the intervening period between um, a, an exposure that requires PEP and the next exposure, there could be things that happen that would actually be a red flag and could trigger someone to actually have a better conversation about more consistent prevention. So if you do have just a few events here and there, post-exposure prophylaxis is a lovely, lovely, lovely strategy for pre preventing HIV, realizing that it's riddled with a lot of logistical problems. So that's something that we all know, like it's patient assistance programs, one's by mail and one's in the pharmacy and insurance and prior authorization and mandatory mail order. So it definitely has some limits. 
But there's also the other strategy, which is risk-guided. So what happens when there's a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll? And there's so many arrows that you really can't handle the fact that you're chasing someone with, with post-exposure prophylaxis every second. So in that situation, in the world of HIV, people living with HIV, the answer is we have treatment as prevention. It's a twofer. You, you prevent HIV complications, and you prevent forward transmission of HIV, slam dunk. So it's not really something you're doing for prevention per se, but it's a wonderful side effect of that drug. Um, or drugs. Uh. Um, for HIV negative people, that's what PrEP is for. The idea that you have added another barrier beyond the barriers that you recommend, specifically thinking about condoms, you add another barrier for people who are potentially not able to adhere to condoms at the level that is necessary to prevent HIV infection. So as you have more and more events that happen, um, you have a strategy to prevent HIV that removes some of the urgency and some of the complications of chasing PEP. So that's really the story, I think, and how I like to think about prevention. So you can challenge me and say, what about Epergay, where it is episodic prep? So I don't think Epergay is necessarily a great strategy. We'll talk about it. So I like the idea of making this sort of a no-brainer um, so you don't have to make decisions in the heat of the moment. But that's, that's mine, ON New York City, and the CDC's uh, uh, stance on that. Um, so we're going to focus on prep. So I always like to sort of think about things that ID doctors do all the time. Who writes for malaria prophylaxis? Who has ever written for malaria prophylaxis? Got it. Who has ever given travel advice? All right, that's an ID doctor thing for sure. So here's one model of preventing infection, thinking about malaria. So when you travel to parts of the world where you can get malaria, what do you do? You should always use bed nets all of the time, avoid mosquito exposure. So whatever you do, do not leave your hotel. Because if you leave your hotel and you get malaria, I am totally going to judge you for it. So HIV, very similar. When you're in a time, a season of risk, when behaviorally or epidemiologically your risk for acquiring HIV is high, what can you do? So in this model, you should always use condoms for all sex all the time, only have one partner, and don't have an HIV partner, positive partner, no matter what you do, even if you want to have a baby with them. Or if you get HIV, I will judge you. Similar? How about model two? When you travel to parts of the world where you can get malaria, what do you do? Use the bed nets and avoid mosquitoes as much as possible and take PrEP for malaria. Take anti-malarial medications that prevent uh, malaria. HIV, same story. If you're in that season of risk and you are at risk for getting HIV, the counseling should be use condoms always, as much as you can. But in reality is some people don't or can't and will not do it. And so if eyes on the prize, the goal is to prevent HIV infection, the answer is that you have to use everything in your toolkit and PrEP is one of them. So I tend to prefer this model. It seems like a way more infectious disease model than to make sure you only do these behavioral things. So using the biomedical piece as well as the behavioral seems to be the right strategy. So what about condoms? Let's talk a little bit about that, some honesty about the condom situation. So one of the things that I do in New York, which I think has been like one of the, the main pieces of my time as the assistant commissioner is that I will stand in front of really scary people and tell them that we are choosing data over dogma. So we have to think about the data and not necessarily the dogma of what we've been taught about for HIV prevention. So when you look at the data, we know that consistent condom use prevents STIs and HIV but the devil's in the details for some populations. When you look at the rates of HIV infection in most jurisdictions, what you see is they're decreasing in women, they're decreasing in heterosexual men, but they're stubborn and stable in MSM. They're not moving very fast. 
So when you see the data that when you look at men who have sex with men who report any anal sex with an HIV positive partner, con condoms demonstrate about a 70% effectiveness with reported consistent use. That means using it every time. Um, when you look at people who are less than consistent, less than every time, it actually loses statistical power as an effective prevention device for HIV. That's the data, not the dogma. So if you have people who aren't using condoms constantly, you have to think about other strategies that you will lay on top of a condom to prevent HIV. Even in heterosexual couples that are serodiscordant, it's not perfect. Um, when you actually look in these same studies that were the source for this model, only 16% of the MSM actually use, consistent, uh, use condoms consistently. So it should really make you think that we have a strategy beyond bed nets to prevent malaria. We have PrEP for malaria and we have PrEP for HIV and sort of combining them and using all the modalities um, to make sure that people are able to customize their prevention may be a, a, a hardier strategy than saying there is only one way to prevent HIV. So I start off by saying that we in New York City cover our city in condoms. Like literally, it is like we are wrapped in latex. 37.5 million condoms a year that we distribute. So back in about 2007, we started a municipal, uh, a municipal condom distribution effort. And the idea was that we were going to increase condom use in New York City. We have not increased condom use in New York City. It is stable. It is like a straight line. Um, nothing is changing. So people who use it every time, they use it every time. People who use it some of the time, use it some of the time. And the never people, which notice where the bar is, they don't use condoms. And so the idea is condoms are really important because we need to make them available to people who choose to use them as their primary source of either contraception or HIV STI prevention, but it cannot be the only tool in our toolkit. So this is data from our sexual health survey, which is like our equivalent continuation of CDC's National Health Behavioral Survey. That comes in cycles, it comes every three years. This is something that we do every year, every quarter, where we sort of query populations about, about various things, including condom use. And this is what happens when you focus on men who have sex with men 2010 to 2014, kind of represents that other data I showed you too that was from the community health survey, that there's about 50% of them just always use condoms. And that's just how it is. 50% um, of them don't. And so that really represents one of the challenges. And this is the same data among black and Hispanic women. So for us in New York City, and I think for a lot of parts of the country, black and Hispanic women are really the, the, the main folks who are getting diagnosed with HIV among uh, female heterosexual folks. And so this really represents another challenge, which is like figuring out a way to message pre-exposure prophylaxis for that population in a way that makes sense for them and is appropriate for their context. But the point being is that some people use condoms all the time and some people don't. And so having more strategies for them is clearly important. And then this is something that you saw Dr. Benson show, and I'm showing it to you in a different way. So um, she showed you the data about from the CDC, the model of, of uh, lifetime HIV incidents by, uh, by state. And so the idea that, that one in 99 people in the United States will be diagnosed with HIV at some point in their lives. So this is how the geography breaks down. Um, so you can see that there's a couple of things that interplay. There's prevalence, so like New York City and New York State do that. And then there's also prevalence plus um, an environment that may not be ideal for expansion of medical services, and that's the South. So I think you'll see that there's definitely a trend and that, um, that there is a significant uh, problem that we still have to deal with that we need to think about new strategies that are not just sort of the old strategies to prevent HIV. 
So to hanker down even deeper, um, this is what, you, what it looks like when you look at the lifetime risk of HIV in heterosexuals. So I want to highlight one box, which is that one in 86 black males and one in 49 black females will eventually have HIV based on this model. Right? And that, if you compare that to, um, to white, to, um, to, to um, other races, it is pretty significantly high. And then the really, um, the news that really, uh, I think, put a chill in everyone's heart as well was the MSM data from that same study. And I will just point out this one, although I should point out all of them. Uh, it's one in six for every MSM in the US. For black MSM, one in two. So it's a coin toss, lifetime uh, potential of getting HIV. And so look at Latino. And the whole point is that, they're, that, that the strategies, the flat line of condom use isn't working. That's the point. And so what needs to happen is change that flat line. So I, I think that I, I'm sitting in here with like some of the giants of HIV AIDS in the world. I'm just saying, like you have a faculty that, is, that, that makes me sweat. And I just feel like I'm gonna watch their heads nod when I say, everything that's led to changes in HIV make us uncomfortable. All of it. Like, can we get people on antiretroviral therapy? Can we afford it? It's uncomfortable. Can we get people on PrEP? It feels weird to change our message. But I think that this is part of getting out of our comfort zone because our comfort zone is not succeeding in some parts of our population. So then looking at high-stake clients, um, the CDC did some interesting modeling to figure out how many people in the U.S. need PrEP. So what they found was that one in four sexually active HIV-negative adult men who have sex with men have indications for PrEP. That ends up being about a half a million men. Um, an estimated one in 200 HIV-negative heterosexually active adults have indications for PrEP. And so overall, that means that about 1.2 million adults probably are at very elevated risk for HIV acquisition, and they're not really currently being served by messaging to sort of end this. So it really raises the point that we need to do something that is in the harm reduction space to prevent HIV acquisition, because look what happens when we do. So um, this is the data from New York City. I just show what I know because it's where I'm from, um, but the data is very similar throughout the country. This is uh, all about neonatal HIV trends, and you'll see something you don't have to be a high-level epidemiologist to see, that those bars are very low and that there are not lots of babies being born with HIV anymore. So the message of don't have sex, don't have babies didn't work. Rather, the idea of using antiretroviral therapy regardless of T-cell count to treat pregnant women to prevent transmission ended up being a better strategy. And on the back of that, we in New York last year had no new infections among, new, uh, among newborns. Yeah, Cuba. <laughs> Who's Cuba? So the point is that, that there was a strategy that wasn't a judgmental strategy, but a strategy that was based in science and said you can prevent HIV infection by treating women regardless of CD4 count. And this is the data that I really, this is the one that I want to burn in your mind because it's the same story. This is New York State data on HIV and AIDS diagnoses. The truth is we didn't know about HIV diagnoses until 2000 because they weren't reported, only AIDS was reported. The point of this slide though is, and Kristen, you're right, I'm walking away right into the thing. So the point of the slide is that that's 1985, that's 2011. This is the injection drug user proportion of new HIV and AIDS cases. And you see that it went way up. Harm reduction, syringe exchange in the mid-90s in New York, antiretroviral therapy. And all of a sudden, it's almost a sentinel event for an injection drug user in New York City to have an HIV infection. On the flip side, 
um, you see that the proportion of uh, an MSM increased as a proportion from IDU decreased, but now it's a completely different story. So like, what can we do that's in the harm reduction space from the lesson that we've learned from maternal to child transmission and from injection drug users to change the story of HIV in men who have sex with men? And the answer is add more things to the toolkit. The equivalent of syringe exchange is saying a harm reduction strategy for sex, which in our situation is condoms plus PrEP whatever mess of that combination may work. So that's really what I think um, is an important message to walk away with, that harm reduction tends to be the right answer rather than harm elimination, which fits really well with a conversation we're gonna have about STD, because that's really the story, that STD, part of the prevention of HIV, may not be preventing STD in the classic way we thought about it, which is don't ever get it. Um, we'll talk more about it. So what about PrEP studies in general? So I'm just gonna go over a couple of the high-level ones that are really important and do a little bit of a focus on the STD part of the story since that's technically my charge for the day. So this is the IPREX masthead, really important study. I think I'm not gonna beat you over the head with it. I think everyone or most people have heard of IPREX. Um, there's a couple things about it. Um, I like showing this slide, not because I'm, a, I'm an expert uh, clinical researcher like so many people in the room, but because it pisses me off and I'll show you why. So when I see this, there's about 5,000 men who are screened, and oops, at screening, 10% of them were positive. Just 10%. That's insane. So 10% of MSM landing in the study were positive at landing and didn't know about it. Right? That makes me angry. So they go to 2,500, get randomized, PrEP or placebo. They go through, and they're followed for HIV seroconversion, and what they find is, um, in this lovely survival analysis, red is placebo, blue is drug, um, that y-axis is probability of HIV infection, the x-axis is weak, weak since randomization, and the red line and the blue line split. The blue line means that there's a lower probability of people getting HIV who were on the drug, resulting in an intention to treat, a modified intention to treat analysis efficacy of about 44%. That doesn't sound super. 44% seems low. Now, with that said, if uh, Dr. Gulick opened a study with a, with a vaccine that was 44%, uh, there'd be lines around the door, uh, around, the, around the block to get it for HIV. So one of the important things about the story is that when you actually look at, I know this is a, a seismic piece of information for people who do HIV, if you take the med, it works, and if you don't, it doesn't. Um, so that works for PrEP too. And so there, there's actually a bit more nuance in that, which is um, if you look at other studies where they did pharmacokinetics of people who took uh, PrEP at different schedule times, like once weekly, twice weekly, three times weekly, et cetera, what they found is that when you compare those levels to the levels of people who are protected from HIV in IPREC study, people who took four to six tablets a week or more ended up having uh, protection that approximated daily administration. So there is a confidence interval around that. It means that there is uh, probably 86 to 100% efficacy. But the bottom line is that if you take PrEP, even if you don't take it perfectly, it could actually lead to pretty good results. So if you actually look at the IPREX data and look for people who had any tenofovir in their blood, it was a 96% efficacy. So that's any. So if they actually had a good level, it ends up being closer to 100. But what happened with STIs and IPREX? So, one of the things that I'm gonna say three or four times is all of these PrEP studies, they are swimming in STDs. Swimming in them. And they were probably swing, swimming in them before, but now they're getting monitored enough where we can find it. So I wanna say one important thing about this, which is what challenges our core biological belief about STD 
and HIV. So we have been taught, I think, pretty effectively that having an STD potentially potentiates HIV acquisition or transmission, right? That's probably still true. But when you look at the PrEP studies, they are literally swimming in syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, and in some of them, there are no seroconversions. So we have to really think about what that rhetoric means and what that data means over the dogma of what we say and really figure out what does the STD mean and how can we intervene on it in a way that preserves our goal of no HIV infection. Okay, well anyway, they're swimming in it. So you can see that like from the perspective of study week, um, it, it, it's similar in placebo and in, uh, and in the uh, drug arms, but there's a bunch of folks who are getting syphilis. That's probably the, the most significant infection that, that they found in IPREX. Um, what about TDF2? So I picked the study just because it's heterosexually active uh, people in Botswana um, who are getting TDF and FTC for, um, for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So this one too, um, it has a very similar looking uh, intention to treat analysis survival curve that you actually see that about 62.2% of the people who were in the study who were on drug, um, that was the efficacy associated with the use of PrEP in this, in this specific analysis. Um, when you look at this terrible small slide, the bottom line is that uh, about 4.6% of them got uh, gonorrhea, 12.4% got chlamydia, and 4.6% got herpes. That's what they were testing for. So they have a pretty significant amount of STI in this one. This is a heterosexually active group, realizing that the epidemiologic environment is a lot different in that part of the world, but really saying that this may approximate the epidemiologic environment of MSM, given how much syphilis and other STIs live in that population. So one of the other important lessons from PrEP, and I like to put this up just as like a take home, even though it's not STD focused, is that the more you take it, the better it works. And so this is what on, on the study level. So the sort of lighter gray is the percent of, of people in studies who had uh, tenofovir detected in their blood. The darker gray is the percent, is the efficacy reported um, for PrEP. And what you see is that the more people took the drug, the better it worked. Um, going down so far as FemPrep, where really in effect, they weren't measuring tenofovir emtricitabine at all since it, there wasn't enough drug in the study to say anything about it because people weren't taking it. But I do like to think about the, about the issue of FemPrep and some of the, uh, and the voice study because a lot of what happened there was that women were entering the study because they wanted to access care. They didn't really care about the PrEP. They cared about the other stuff. And so just thinking about where is the right place in reality in real life settings to place PrEP to make it a part of sort of what the primary care environment is for some people who have never had a chance at primary care focused on their sexual health since before it was kind of something that you couldn't talk about. So there's guidelines all over the place um, that are telling you to do, uh, to do PrEP. In fact, New York State has guidance. It's about to convert over to guidelines. They're doing a lot of work on that, which is exciting. And then the um, CDC has the guidelines for pre-exposure prophylaxis for the entire country. Um, here's what they say about STIs. So this is the uh, STD guideline, the, uh, the guidelines from the CDC. Um, so it's sort of, lives in their follow-up universe. So it's hard to read, I think, but it says that follow-up visits at least every three months to provide the following. HIV test, adherence counseling, behavioral risk reduction support, side effect assessment, STI symptom assessments, footnote, footnote, STI symptom assessment, um, at three months and every six months thereafter assess renal function and every six months test for bacterial STIs. So let's just dissect that for one moment. What that means is I'm on PrEP, I come to the doctor or my clinician and they say, do you have symptoms of STI? I say no. 
then you don't test me. Okay, we'll revisit that. So that's sort of the idea, that, that the guidelines say every six months for that. Um, not dissimilar, so there it is again. It says uh, to conduct that testing every, about every six months. New York State guidelines, same story. It says that, at, that you should be asking about symptoms um, and that you should at least every six months, even in asymptomatic, do testing um, and whenever symptoms are reported. So it sort of hangs it, its hat on Q6 month testing for STIs and it hangs its hat on um, come back if you're symptomatic. So the real world experience, um, just in terms of other studies that were out in the world, this is the one that I really like because we're launching PrEP in the STD clinics in New York City, so I, I quote proud fairly frequently. It's a study of STD clinics in, uh, in the UK. Um, people either went on PrEP right away or they waited for about 12 months, and when you compared the arms, golly gee willikers, the people who were on PrEP didn't get HIV, and the efficacy was reported at 86%, with about 30 people needed to treat to prevent one infection versus like 175 on statins to treat a cardiovascular event, just as a gauge. Um, they were swimming in STIs, sound familiar? So when you look at it, um, the immediate arm who, who were um, on PrEP and knew it, um, it was an open, open label study, um, had a significant number of STIs. Um, and it was syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea. So they were very common in this population. And then there's a the Kaiser Permanente data. So this is like the one that sort of takes home my point about the disconnect between STD now and the potential for HIV transmission. So um, when you look at them, after 12 months of PrEP use in this real world experience in Kaiser in, in San Francisco, 50% of PrEP users were diagnosed with any STI. 33 had a rectal STI, 33% had chlamydia, 28% gonorrhea, and 5.5% syphilis. So using all of that data, they thought that you would expect an incidence of 8.9 per 100 person years in their study population. And what did they get? They got zero. So given what the risk was like one and the fact that they had STIs potentiating this, one would expect that they would have gotten more infections, but they didn't. And so it really raises the question, what, where, is, where does STD live in HIV prevention? And the answer is HIV prevention, at least for these populations, gives STD a brand new life. And it's a life that focuses on sexual health and screening rather than one that, that focuses on advice that does not actually lead to action in real life universe of saying you must, you must, must, must do X, Y, or Z. So this blends the story into make it more contextual for what people actually do. But it's not just PrEP where this comes up. So we heard a little bit about, uh, about viral load suppression, preventing HIV transmission. HPTN052, which we talk about, is actually special in that it's about starting antiretrovirals, right? It's someone has viremia, they have a partner who's HIV negative, um, you start them on antiretrovirals, and then you see what happens with transmission. This study, which is uh, from a the ANRS, like the, the French folk, um, and in Canada, what they did is, rather than say, start meds, it's are you undetectable and you have a negative partner who's not on PrEP? So rather than seeing what happens when they start, they saw what happens when you're just on it. So there wasn't that same like buildup, like are they having sex during the decrease in viral, viral load? This was sort of their undetectable. And what they found in the study was that, that no matter what kind of sex they were looking at, vaginal sex, MSM receptive intercourse, anything, they had zero new infections in the study. But what they also, I mean, it's, there's a confidence interval around all of it. So that's what the, what the more, like the bright lines are, the, the, um, the dashed lines. There's a 95% confidence interval around all of this. So nothing is really zero. There's always the possibility of HIV acquisition. But it looks as if um, 
treatment as prevention has legs and it has an interesting way to interact with PrEP. But I bring this up because these folks had a lot of STDs. So they were having sex outside of their primary partnerships. And so what happened is that we were seeing, there were seroconversions in the study, but the seroconversions were not linked. So they didn't have a, 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 a high sequence homology. And so what you do see is that about 16% of the MSM and 5% of the heterosexual men and women actually were diagnosed with an STI at some point in the study. So it's you know, important to remember that you know, a lot of the conversation about PrEP and, and, and partnerships really needs to be pretty frank, and you also have to listen to patients. Sort of going back to our question that we had during, during the panel, that if someone says that they need something, you tend to believe them because they may not want to give you all the details of why. So Epergay, very similar. So we, we, I think you probably have heard about this. It's an on-demand version of PrEP. So rather than daily administration, you take two pills before you have sex and then a pill a day for two days after, by the way. The two smiley faces and a heart, that's what sex looks like in France. So it's, <laughs> that's just what it is. So <laughs> sex looks different in New York. It's a lot different. So, <laughs> so they either went on placebo or placebo uh, or, or uh, on-demand prep, and they got followed, and yes, it was great. 86% risk reduction, excellent adherence, safety similar to placebo, but the, to safety similar to placebo, um, but they're the devil's in the details. French guys have a lot of sex, is what we learned in the study. And so what happened is they were taking the pills about 16 times per month, and if you look at the previous slide I showed you about about how many times a month you have to take PrEP, they were pretty much taking intermittent PrEP, um, which pretty much is, is you know, bad adherence PrEP rather than, than PrEP on demand. So you have to imagine you'd have to find like a person who has sex once a month to be able to do this, study effectively, to see what it actually means. So it's a hard one to recruit. But the point is um, that not only were they taking it a lot, but 60% of the time when they had to make the decision about PrEP, they screwed up, they were wrong. Just like the condom, they were like, oh, I sh don't have to go on PrEP on this one, but technically by criteria, that was an encounter that probably ought to have involved PrEP. So CDC and New York City put up a nice uh, little blurb that said, this is a great idea for some people, but please don't make it prime time. Like, it shouldn't be what everyone does all the time, just because it doesn't seem like it's got legs beyond, uh, beyond a very specific population. But what about STDs? So, and again, without going down this slide and circling things and telling you all about it, yes, it's true, they were also swimming in STIs in Epergay. Um, so there was a bunch of syphilis, lots of gonorrhea and chlamydia. So, um, you know, 38% of them at some point had any STI on the tenofovir emtricitabine arm and 32% on placebo. So um, lots of STIs, but very little HIV. So what about some breaking news from Croy? This is where I really get into that STI juice here. This is the data from Callan Lord, which is our one of our really big um, uh, LGBT clinics and a site that has about 1,800 people on PrEP right now. So um, they actually looked to see what happens if you follow the guidelines in New York State and really focused on, on, on symptomatics and screening every six months rather than routinely. And what they found was that um, really routine screening did a better job at identifying STIs. So I actually will shout out San Francisco. I think that this is a little confusing how they showed it. The San Francisco city data, which I'm about to show, is really clear and makes the point better. So focus on that one, even though the message is identical. So this is a great way of showing the same story. So in this slide, it's a percent of infections for which treatment would have been delayed with Q6 month as opposed to Q3 month screening. 
So how many infections would we not have been, have, test, have treated if we followed the regular guidelines? And so it looks like for gonorrhea, it's about 34%, chlamydia, 40%, syphilis, 20%. That's important, right? And then so overall, about 35.3% of the infections would have just waited for another piece of time. In a moment, I'm going to move to the next slide to show you what that means in terms of partnerships. But the other part that I think is really important, and this looks identical to the San Francisco slide they put out years ago about asymptomatic rectal gonorrhea and chlamydia. So it's like, it, it's like almost a direct reference for nerds. Like I literally was like, oh, I know that slide. Um, so what they did was um, they looked at what percentage of infections were asymptomatic. And so um, red is asymptomatic and pink is symptomatic. So what you see is rectal gonorrhea, rectal chlamydia, pharyngeal GC and pharyngeal CT, as well as urethral CT were pretty much all asymptomatic. So only, rectal, only urethral gonorrhea had like a signal with the majority of cases being uh, symptomatic. So close your eyes and remember when I said, the guidelines say screen for symptoms doesn't make any sense. So that, that I think is a really important thing to think about in terms of a strategy. So when you look, um, what ends up being interesting is that um, by in, in this highly sexually active population of, of guys on PrEP, Q3 month screening followed by prompt treatment can actually prevent a, medium, a median of three sex partner per STI case from being exposed via condomless anal sex. You can ignore the rest of the slide and just focus on this, although this slide is great. So the idea really being that not only are you treating somebody um, who has an STI, but you have downstream prevented a bunch of other transmission. So you can imagine that sort of the strategy of more frequent testing is probably a pretty good one from the perspective of people who are at that enhanced risk, both for their own personal health and potentially also from the, for the, for the potential of forward transmission. But it's not just about bacterial STIs. So I think this is just, um, I'm not going to go over it in detail, but the slide from the case that was reported at Croy this last year of a breakthrough HIV infection in someone who's on PrEP, a very rare event, but not a surprise. Any biological system can be overcome. We know this from HIV. If you meet a resistant virus, there can be a drug that doesn't match it. And so this is what that story is. But I just put this up there to sort of say that, that the follow-up scheme of PrEP, the coming in every three months, the having a connection to healthcare, like actually is significant because this person, could he potentially have gotten acutely infected in another scenario, not on PrEP and not connected to care with people not looking after him? The answer is probably and yes. So look at this. He had symptoms, exposure, symptoms, diagnosis. Like, so that's kind of the informative lesson, which is that both HIV and STD screening in the context of a strategy um, with PrEP may actually mean that people will be accessing the appropriate guidelines level care that they should have always had, but never were able to get because of the various, the various barriers created by there's only one way to prevent HIV. So, some core messages. PrEP should not be offered as a sole intervention for HIV prevention. So I believe that's probably true. It should be part of a comprehensive prevention plan that in my opinion should focus on sexual health. Barrier protection should still be encouraged. In other words, I think the rhetoric that we hear often is that someone says PrEP yes, condom no. It should be PrEP yes and condoms when I can. If that's all we can get, that's harm reduction. That's pretty good. And that's also STD harm reduction. So the ideal is to say condoms every time, but if it's not feasible, at least condoms some of the time, as much as you can. Um, it's important to remember that PrEP is only for people with a very clearly documented recent HIV negative test who are, who are at risk for HIV. 
Um, PrEP has a role in conception potentially. Um, it's important to remember that PrEP depends on adherence and you gotta test people for HIV and STIs frequently. And my argument is that um, I hope that these data end up changing some of the guidance in the, sit in the state as well as CDC to really make the point that probably Q3, Q3 month testing is a better strategy given the missed opportunities that uh, both San Francisco and New York City have identified. So is the volume up? Can we go back? So I was gonna show you sort of what, what happens when you take the sort of concept of, can you go back a slide again and then make the volume in the room louder? If not, it's okay, we'll play it. Tell me when I'm ready. So before we play, um, so this is our uh, social marketing campaign from New York City, it's called PlaySure. Um, and yes, it says PlaySure because it sounds like pleasure. New York City saying that sex is for fun is a new thing. Um, so the idea of this is to really blend it all together, to sort of look and say what happens when you put the entire toolkit together and not differentiate between people living with HIV and those who are at risk for HIV, acknowledging the fact that they should be on one continuum of both prevention and HIV care and that the messaging needs to be identical. Do I have volume now if I push play, you think? Okay, so this is what we came up with. No! Can you make it play for me? Okay, should we just do it again? We all love to play, but we gotta play sure. And that means finding the right protection combination that works for you. We use condoms. I play sure. We play sure with prep. HIV treatment and condoms. PrEP is an easy-to-take daily pill that reduces your risk of HIV infection by over 90%. If you're positive, HIV treatment can keep viral loads undetectable and your partner safe. Condoms provide additional protection against HIV and other STIs. NYC plays sure. We're healthy and plan on staying that way. So we're going for a fear-based approach. Just kidding. So. The idea really is that we the, of blending it all together because people will have different strategies and I think that one of the important messages in prevention is that there are people who have been doing this right and have stayed negative for a long time so we should learn from them and then teach them what's new. And so I think that the point of this is really that rather than say there's only one way to prevent HIV, the question is what's your way to prevent HIV? So that I think is what the, what the narrative should be and how it should change. So we have more of this coming and it's really fun. Um, but, uh, but I just sort of use it as an example that we're trying to make the messaging, the data actually speak for us over the dogma. Um, so I also wanna leave with one parting punch, which is important that it is neither rational nor expected that PrEP is a silver bullet for all sexual health issues. It is not meant to do everything for everybody. Seatbelts do not prevent cancer. So you're not gonna stop wearing seatbelts because they don't prevent cancer. They prevent death and injury in car accidents. They don't prevent cancer. PrEP prevents HIV transmission. It does not directly prevent STD, but golly gee willikers, I think that if people are tested more, it's gonna change the narrative of sexual health for a population that certainly has not been getting enough attention in that universe for years, and maybe what is a major driver for both STI and HIV. So the lesson is, use seatbelts to prevent injury. You may wear it on the way to your colonoscopy, um, or, and use PrEP to prevent HIV. So, I do have questions. Um, if an HIV negative patient comes in reporting condomless anal sex with his HIV positive partner who is and has been virally suppressed, would you prescribe PrEP? 
So I'll let you guys answer that. It's more of a lab experiment to see what you say more than an answer. Okay, I like that answer. If the person wants to do it, I think it's a really good idea. Yet the concept of sort of giving people the self-efficacy to decide what they need personally for HIV prevention, if they tend to say they're interested, it tends to mean that they have a reason to be interested. interested. After prescribing PrEP, patients should be seen regularly for follow-up visits. How often do you screen for STIs? I wonder if you'll get that one. Every six months based on national guidelines, only when patients come in and are symptomatic, every three months when patients come in for follow-up or never. Right, that is the ejector seat one. Maybe I'll pick never just to be contrary. Okay, so that's, I think, the right answer. The guidelines say something different, and just in, insurers beware. People who deal with insurance beware. Just make sure, like, this is going to come up. But until the guidelines change, sometimes there may be a, an issue with payment for those tests in between. It's come up a couple of times for me. So just think about that. There may be strategies to use different ways to get folks tested in between, but it seems as if the right answer based on the data are that you should probably get screened every three months or so. And that's the end of my talk. I'm right on time. That's good. Rare. We have time for questions. The first question I got was, should PrEP be recommended to IV drug users who always use clean needle? Great. Complicated question. Um, the data that uh, people refer to for injection drug users is the Bangkok Tenofovir study, which is a different environment than ours. Um, so I think that um, it's important to remember that injection drug users who use, uh, use clean syringes may sometimes also do other things to access drugs that may involve sex. And so it's important to think about getting a better sexual history on them as well and not just put, it, put them in the sort of bin of I'm an injection drug user, but also put them in the bin of I'm a sexual human and that sometimes I, have, I may have to do things to get access to my drugs or food or housing that's different than what I'd like to admit to. So I think that the answer is that it's, it, it depends. I think that there are data supporting it. Cost-effective data in New York, cost-effectiveness data in the U.S. is a little shaky for using PrEP and injection drug users as HIV prevention primarily, but for sure I think it's an important conversation and is a case-by-case -case basis. Guidelines say that you should consider, the, consider using PrEP and injection drug users. The partner has a Truvada-resistant organism. Mm. So hard. So there's, there is the total government answer, which is the only drug approved for the use for, uh, for PrEP is tenofovir emtricitabine. And so for now, I think we're stuck with the idea that there's only one drug approved for this and that you should probably stay with that. There's also the theoretical biological sort of conversation that not every drug, every every type of HIV you have in your blood is the type that gets transmitted sexually. So there is a pretty significant po possibility of a wild type virus still being transmitted. So my advice would be, wait for another drug to come out. Hopefully more options have become available. It sounds like some are coming sooner than later, um, but for now all you've got in your list is, is uh, tenofovir emtricitabine and some uh, frank discussion with that patient that it may, there may be some impact on the efficacy. That may be, a, a, you know, that's the kind of thing you wanna have a conversation about, like do you really wanna change what you're doing with condoms in this scenario? 
Like, so that's, you know, full disclosure of data in that, in that case may be helpful because we know that you can get uh, drug-resistant infection. We have that case from Canada that I showed you. So it's not impossible. And it's not surprising that it's not impossible. What about minors? Ah, so this is a policy question in lots of ways. So, um, so I think that there are lots of jurisdictions looking at ways in to liberalize um, parental consent for HIV prevention and for treatment. So for instance, in New York, I'll use my example, you can get tested when you're 12. You can't start antiretroviral therapy if you're positive without parental consent unless you're a liberated minor. Very complicated. PrEP is the same story. So I think that really the answer is that places that do adolescent medicine sometimes have mechanisms. It really goes facility by facility what you're able to do. But bottom line is I think it's a zone of a lot of advocacy that's needed to change some policy. Because I mean, I think if you have an explanation of benefits that goes to the parent's house that says Truvada, and you see all this HIV testing, it could potentially be, uh, be damaging. So I think that there is definitely a role for PrEP in minors. I think that the devil's in the details of how to provide it to them in a way that doesn't um, cause them any sort of personal threat in their relationship with their home. So I think, you know, and, and then actually one more important thing, there's an awesome ATN study, 0110, I can't remember, I'm bad at numbers, Trip knows all this, I'll study numbers. Yes, something like that. And so it's a number after ATN. And what they did is an adolescent study where um, they looked at, uh, at PrEP provision in people who were younger. And, and a couple of things that were really important came out. One is that adolescents are not small adults and that they have different needs. So um, as the study visits became less and less, the adherence became less and less. And though I don't have this slide to show you, there's one really terrifying slide where they stratify PrEP adherence and levels based on race. And what they found was that um, young white MSM and young Hispanic MSM got over that four pill threshold and stayed there, but black MSM never made the threshold and then petered right off through the study. So really raising the point that it's really important, especially in the adolescent space, to think about what context is and what the other drivers are that may, that, that need to be addressed in the context of HIV prevention. So I mean, you know, housing is HIV prevention, jobs are HIV prevention from that perspective. So it's really important to think of the whole picture. Any idea when TAF will be included in the? I have no idea. No. There's smarter people who may know and have insight, but I think also there's uh, some debate as to sort of what, uh, sort of what the uh, efficacy will be in certain populations, specifically women. We don't know the answer, um, but it's something that we're gonna have to look out for. So don't prescribe it for people for PrEP, even though it's tempting, just don't for now, no. Wait for more news. Tools do you have in your, your toolbox to support a provider who, because of a, a lifetime worth of learning, has a a mind that says to them, if a man is going to have anal sex with another man, he should use a condom. What's so hard about right. that? You just put on a condom. And, you know, because of that, that voice that they're hearing, they just, you know, won't take the sex history or they just won't offer PrEP. They just won't get out the prescription yeah. pad, you know? So, I mean, I think, you know, I, it's really hard because I think, you know, I, I, I lived in an era where sex was, a uh, was equated with disease right off. And so like, you know, the thought of like condomless, like sort of e doing anything that, that may support condomless sex feels a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but the bottom line is that it's, that I showed you the data. And I think that that's what's important is to talk about the data, which is that it's easy for someone to sit in an office and say, use a condom 100% of the time. People don't. 
And so I think that the more we show the data, so sort of looking at you and saying in like these studies, 16% of MSM use condoms 100% of the time, and anything less than 100% meant that they weren't working, I think is a really important piece of data. Like that is like an inspiring piece of data where like the, the, the dogma that we're used to, which is a good dogma, may not be the only narrative and that we've got to sort of add more to it. So I think from in New York City what we're doing, which I think uh, other people are going to be adapting nationwide, is we're doing detailing. So we hired drug reps um, and we created an action toolkit about pre-exposure pre and post-exposure prophylaxis and we send them to doctor's offices. We've gone to 1,500 practices so far um, to sort of teach them about pre-exposure prophylaxis and what the role is. Let me tell you that the, the mission of that thing, number one, two, and three, is take a sexual history. PrEP is like the fifth thing on the list. So it's all about having the conversation. So I think that the more we have conversations about it, the more we sort of get out there and make it a piece of the primary care ethos to say that we've got something to prevent. Um, we've got something that can prevent HIV beyond counseling. I think that's gonna be helpful, but shifting that needle is gonna be a lot of work. And I think that what'll happen is certain pockets of providers will become PrEP providers, and then it's gonna take longer to disseminate. With that said, this dissemination of innovation so far has been exquisitely rapid in some venues, way faster than one would expect for other things. So it's actually pretty exciting. That, for instance, in New York, we went from 6% to 16% PrEP use in like one quarter. We have like asymptotic increases in PrEP, uh, prep prescriptions in parts of the city. Which part? Chelsea and the village. Why? So then, we're building, so then what we're doing is saying, well, we're going to build infrastructure everywhere but Chelsea and the Village to make sure that that, that PrEP is going to land in the STD clinics in, in the Bronx and Harlem and Brooklyn and Queens. Sort of build it outside. So the answer is that um, it's shifting a narrative and it's uncomfortable to think about, uh, about the fact that it's not just condoms anymore. Uh, Doug Van Auken, Cleveland, Ohio. Do you have uh, anything to say about, I, I believe there's data showing that new HIV infections are responsible for, then again, more new HIV infections. Do you have any data showing for each HIV prevention due to PrEP, there are more downstream benefits? So uh, PrEP's not been around long enough from that perspective, but from the perspective of, of prevention of, I mean, I, I think that PrEP has a role as prevention of acute infection. So kind of equivalent to that data with the STI story of like, treat, like identifying the STI and treating it prevents like three potential exposures. That's the same. I mean, so, so many people may be asymptomatic with acute HIV infection that if you, in effect, make them nearly uninfectable, so they never have to live through that acute infection phase and they're not having those partnerships unaware of their HIV status. I know that when they do models of PrEP, they actually put that in there as part of the mathematical modeling of what happens if you impact some acute infection. Because when you look at acute infections, it's happening in exactly the people who are starting PrEP. So if you make some, some, some segment of that population um, unlikely to get acutely infected, there should be downstream findings, and that's gonna be a question of time. I mean, we're, we monitor in New York and lots of jurisdictions acute infections, so we'll have a sense of what's going on. Plus, by the way, we've also flagged tenofovir and uh, emtricitabine mutations as something that is, an, uh, is a frequently reviewed piece of surveillance in New York, so we can see if something is changing with resistance among acute and recent infections. Thank you, Dimitri. Yeah, thank you.